Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, as this program is being uh, initially broadcast, I think there are uh, a lot of folks feeling for the first time this year the coldness of winter. Some of you are listening from the south and are kicking back with your mint juleps and just laughing at us up here in the north. But, uh, Ken, we've chosen to live up here, right? <laughs> oh, yes. I was a native Floridian, so I've chosen to live in the north. Yeah. yeah, I lived in South Florida for a year and a half, and actually I couldn't wait to get back to Ohio. I'm just an Ohio boy, <laughs> born and bred, and, and love it back up here. So, uh, But we thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, I will, just as we begin... Uh, remind you that you can connect with the Deep in Scripture program at the website, deepinscripture.com, or you can also connect through chnetwork.org, our, the, the website of the Coming Home Network. And you can access all the old Deep in Scripture programs that go back four or five years uh, on the website. And something I mentioned last week in passing, but I, I wanted to emphasize it again to any of you listening. Uh, the reason Ken and I do this program is not uh, about us. Uh, it's about encouraging you as a listener to appreciate the wonderful sacred scripture, to appreciate how our Lord has given this great gift to us, and how studying the word can draw us closer to our Lord and his church. But the reason I want to emphasize this is that I want you to know that the reason Ken and I do this program and put it up on the internet is so that you might consider using these materials at the local level as an adult Bible study. Uh, more often than not, I hear people talk about, boy, I wish we had a Bible study in our local parish, but they themselves feel inadequate to do this. And I understand how busy life can be, especially for a local priest. But the reason... Uh, that now you have these outlines online and you have Ken's and my discussion is as a background to you, as an encouragement to you uh, to consider doing a Bible study in your local parish. And Ken, this is really an important part of what the church calls mystagogia. Yeah, the, that, that's a good point, Marcus. Mystagogia was the time of instruction for those who had been baptized at Easter Vigil, and now they were entering into the full life of the church through the Eucharist. And mystagogia was the time when they were being instructed and being more involved in the community. And that's something we need a lot of today. People go through nine months of RCIA, uh, but then they kind of, well, okay, what's what's after that? And even for people that have grown up Catholic and been in the church for many years, there's a need to have constant contact with the Word of God, with the great teachings of the church through catechesis. Uh, my own daughter recently mentioned, my oldest daughter, I mentioned that she goes on Sunday evenings to a Bible um, reflection time with uh, some of the young mothers in the church. And she goes there and, and they reflect upon the Sunday readings that were there. And she finds that so nourishing for her own soul. And I think we need that. Uh, many Catholics need to connect the mind to the experience of worship and mass. And 
Don't forget, too, that <clears throat> this can be a means of outreach to others to invite them into a Bible study, especially in the book of Romans or in any other book of the New Testament, where non-Catholic Christians may want to come and uh, learn with us what that text says. And sometimes they can bring very interesting perspectives that can cause us to think a lot about what the text means. Yeah, years ago, Jim Anderson and I uh, worked our way through Ephesians, and I think that's available on the website. But I especially want to encourage this book of Romans. You know, Ken, one of the most untouched groups in the church are young adults from age 18 until about 30. Yeah. 18, they leave high school, they go away to college. But what about those young men and women that don't go to college? They're at home in the church. How are they fed? Where is their fellowship? And what usually happens is after they get married and they start having kids, then they come back to the church. So there's that 18 to 30. And John, in his letter, 1 John, says that's the group of young men that have the most energy to give the most <laughs> in the work of the church, and we're, we're not tapping them. And maybe one way to invite them back would be an adult Bible study. Well, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, this, and I have a very strong affection, having taught in college for a number of years uh, oh, yeah. and worked work with the Newman Center. I mean, I have a very strong affection for, because it's during that period of time that you spoke of the years about 18 to 30 years old when people are making decisions that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. uh, be it marriage, vocation, uh, other kinds of important decisions. And uh, boy, we need we really need to reach. And you know what's wonderful about Americus is that in some dioceses, um, sadly not all, but in some dioceses, um, there's a real outreach to these college students and these young adults, uh, like Texas A&M, Kansas, uh, University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh, these are some of the schools where there's a very vibrant uh, campus ministry going. It's really crucial to reach them during that period of time. Well, there's the Theology on Tap outreaches that are particularly yeah. geared to these groups, which are great. So mm. once again, mm-hmm. anyone, if you're interested in, in using these programs as a backdrop to your Bible studies, go ahead, run with it. It's all available for free online. If you have any questions or encouragement, give us a call or an email. We'll gladly do what we can to help. Well, you know, Marcus, what you're talking about, I think, uh, fits in very uh, email we have from a listener today uh, because it really deals with this question of the interface of the Catholic Christian with the culture around us. I wonder if you might uh, give me permission to read that. Yes, go ahead, please. Great. Uh, it says, Dear Marcus and Dr. Howe, last week you discussed Romans 16, uh, 6, 16, where Paul says, Do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? In St. Paul's context, he is speaking to Christians who, besides having been enslaved to sin, had been enslaved to either their pagan culture or the legalism of their Jewish culture. This is why later he will tell them not to be conformed to the world in, in Romans twelve two. <clears throat> Does this verse apply also today to today to our enslavement within a modern industrial and economic culture? Thanks, Joseph. What do you think about that, Marcus? Wow. I mean he this email taps on something that I've been very concerned about and aware of for a number of years. In fact, I've 
I've got a book coming out next fall. Uh, Ignatius Press has mercifully decided to uh, to publish a book that I'm entitling tentatively, Life from Our Land, and it's about reflection on our from our living out in rural America. Mm-hmm. And this hits the nail on the head on this issue because I don't think that the majority of Americans, I don't think the majority of Christians realize to what extent we have become addicted to and enslaved by the technological culture in which we live. And mm-hmm. as I say that, I mean, I'm certainly using technology. I'm using electricity. We're using the Internet, mm-hmm. even as we speak, Ken. Mm-hmm. And we can't imagine life without this. But there's a real danger that has arisen, particularly in the last 50 years, that our parents and grandparents never dreamed of, at the same time that they themselves were becoming um, connected and and trapped uh, by this growing industrial technological culture. Now, I I don't want to spend a whole program talking about this, but uh, we've had many writers over the last 200 years that have warned us about this. We can go all the way back to the middle of the 1800s. A great convert by the name of Orestes Brownson wrote about this, warned about this. The beginning of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc and others were warning Mm -hmm. about this. In the middle of the 20th century, great writers like many Catholic bishops, including one called Monsignor Luigi, who was, (laughs) of all things, was ahead of the uh, American, the, the North American Catholic Rural Society were warning about what all this was happening. And uh, it, the, the church has been cautioning us for a long time, recognizing that on the one hand, our technological industrial society at its core involves technologies that are amoral and they're a gift of God that require our intellect and will to use them responsibly. But at the same time, every time we accept this new technology into our life, we make choices. And choices Mm -hmm. that have trajectories and ramifications that are sometimes hard for us to see. And so Mm -hmm. this verse from Romans hits it right on the head when it asks us, when we yield ourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, we become slaves to those whom we obey. Mm-hmm. And, and really quickly, just give you a historical overview. Um, 150 years ago, if any of you read the old Laurel, what's Laura, uh, you know, Life on the Prairie books, you'll get the inside glimmer into people who lived lives without any of the utilities, the electricity, the indoor plumbing, the whole house heating and air conditioning, telephones, cars, any of that, what their life was like. And it was a simpler life, and it was a life in many ways of detachment, and they were detached from things they couldn't even imagine because of they lived. 50 years later, at the beginning of the 20th century, that simple life has changed in America. Now people have cars, they have telephones, electricity has entered their homes, maybe indoor plumbing, 
maybe gas heat. But the point is, as soon as these uh, advancements come in their life, every one of them requires that the family be subscribers to a supplier of these technologies. Yeah, you become dependent. You become dependent. You can't yeah. bu- you can't have electricity without being in the grid. You can't have a telephone without being in the system. Right. You can't have gas without getting it from a producer. You can't have mm-hmm. a car without buying gas. Everything is like that. It's kind of like you can't have a record player sitting on your table. It's no good unless you buy a record or unless you mm-hmm. So what happens is technology always requires that we agree to be in partnership with somebody else. And usually it's to whom we are now paying money for a service. Well, back in mid-1950s, and Ken, you can remember this because you and I are the same age, I can enumerate what my parents, how they spent their money. It wasn't all that complicated. They had a mortgage and they had a car loan and they had certain utilities and certain taxes that they paid and every one of those required that they have they bring money in because they had to pay money out to people to whom they now had surrendered to yeah now all that's well and good and we accept the advancements of that and a culture but things have changed in the 50 years Ken since you and I were little kids well 60 years and, and yeah. that is that every today this is what's dangerous Every one of those corporations now to whom we give money now gives a portion of that money to um, organizations, many of which support lifestyles and morality that are contrary to our faith. And recently I was reading an article about a, a gay and lesbian lobbyist group that's actively involved. It's a Catholic group that's actively involved pressuring a number of our bishops to try and give in to the cultural, the new cultural views on same-sex marriage and all those issues, abortion, oh, contraception. Mm-hmm. But in that report, it points out that this lobbyist group is funded by many large corporations. And the list of those large corporations, I looked at that list and I realize that every single one of those corporations I give money to, either the car I drive or the soda that I drink or what I use on the Internet or the computer in front of me, everything can. That, you know, we've slowly, what's happened is that these good technologies have slowly been used to Mm -hmm. capture our lives, and now that we are captured and can't even imagine life without using them, it's using our money to support the very things that are contrary to our faith. And the devil laughs. And Paul's verse here speaks directly to that issue. Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and so there's a danger in this being enmeshed in all of these technologies. One of the interesting things is that uh, I've, I've read books about uh, J.R. Tolkien when he wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all of those, um, these authors who interpret him contend that he was also um, arguing against a growing statism yep. in our culture. 
And it's very interesting that if you look at the way people that live in big cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, L.A., Seattle, and people that live in rural areas, how they vote differently about things. One of the ways in which they're voting differently is that people that live in these great population centers tend to be more sent tend to be a statist. They're voting for more and more services that are being provided from that side rather than living independently. So even apart from the particular moral issues about sexuality yeah. and all of that, there's a tendency to become enmeshed in the culture more and more. So it does seem that Paul's admonition here in Romans uh, six sixteen about not be yielding yourselves to uh, these things uh, is very relevant. It's impossible today for most people to extract uh, extricate themselves from <clears throat> or extract themselves from every form of dependence unless you become perhaps like the Amish. I don't know. Well, I was going to say, uh, but, uh, I was going to say that. Let's think seriously about preparing for retirement, Ken. You know, back mm. in 150 years ago, when a, when a man or woman prepared for how they're going to support themselves the rest of their life, well, they were pretty well sustainable, self-sustaining. They lived on a farm or whatever it was. But even when yeah, they thought about yeah. how much money they needed in the future, it was fairly simple. Today, the problem yeah. is that our lives are dependent on all these technologies. The main reason the whole healthcare system is just so yeah. crazy out of control is mainly because is. of the technologies, and and it yeah. just it multiplies. It, uh, uh, you know what's the word, Ken? I mean, it's not just one plus two plus three. It's two times four times eight times six. It's you know it's exponential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, how do we yeah, plan yeah. five, ten, fifteen years? And um, the, uh, to a certain extent, the Amish saw it. Because when Thomas Edison was trying to convince the world that the only way electricity could work is if each city bought into this grid uh, so that all the, instead of everyone having their own electric source, which could have been the case in the beginning, each of us could have been producing our own electricity, that he convinced us Mm -hmm. we had to buy into General Electric or the big system, that there were a group of people who asked two questions. Number one, if they bought into the system, could they ever get out? And number two, if they bought into yeah. the system, could mm-hmm. they protect their culture? And that group of people said no, and to this day they haven't bought in, and that's the Amish. So what do we do? Um, I suppose we should give a solution of some sort. You know, and I, I would say that other than becoming Amish, uh, and my family and I live out in the country, and I, even then it's how hard it is to, to let go of all these things. So what's the solution? I think, Ken, it seems that two things are simple suggestions. I think we begin by prayerfully examining to what extent we have become attached, enslaved to this technology, uh, looking at our lives uh, and examining how much we've become dependent on it. And especially as we get older, start asking ourselves, is there an extent to which I can slowly become more detached yeah more simple yeah, that's right and uh, number two which um, is a, a great Catholic economic principle that was promoted by Brownson and Chesterton Hilary Belloc and others uh, um, Alan uh, Tate and others in the mid 20th century and that is this idea of subsidiarity and the idea mm-hmm. of subsidiarity is always look for how we can 
uh, our economics can be as local as possible. In other words, our lives are primarily supported not by the federal government. That's getting everything bass backwards. Our life is supported mm-hmm. primarily by our family, and then from our family outward to our local community, to our local town, to our local county, to our local state, and then the federal government. That's subsidiarity. And the way you can use that to escape from this attachment to uh, our economic uh, culture is by always asking the question, "How? where's my money going? And look as local as possible. A good simple example of that tonight you want to buy pizza. Well, where's your money going? If you buy it at the local pizza place that's run by a local family, your money remains with yeah. that family in your community. But if you go down the street to buy pizza from an international pizza place, that money is distributed not just in your community, but to maybe somewhere else in the state, some other state, even now with the internet, to some other country. So the more you can keep your expenses on the local level, you help yourself, your family, and your community to break free from the, the future economic entrapment that we've caught ourselves in. Yeah. And maybe as one final note on all of that, the greatest problem doesn't lie in the technology or in the physical things. It lies in our thinking about yes. it. For example, most people today could not imagine living without health insurance. Uh, I was talking to a young man who's in medical school right now, and he said, you know, you can uh, you can live a very happy life without health insurance. <laughs> it's true, you know. I mean, you don't need health insurance. I mean, if I die at 66 or 76, you know, what difference does it make? Uh, <clears throat> I, I, my life is in God's hands, and I'm, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> yeah. it isn't, I don't need necessarily to have health insurance to be happy, you know. So, anyway. Well, it's partially it's because our medical, system is, our medical system is based on two assumptions, that the goal of medicine is to alleviate all pain and to help us live as long as possible. And the problem well, is... it's alleviating pain, it's doing a very poor job. Yeah, well... <laughs> That's for sure. The point is that our Christian faith teaches us that suffering is a part of maturity. Accepting suffering, yeah. accepting certain aspects of pain is a part of preparing ourselves for the end of life. And it's all yeah, an important part true. of our spiritual growth. And so anyways, I mean, I've waxed long enough about this, but I... I do believe it, it calls us to, to recognize that the, Jesus said much more bolder words about authentic conversion. You know, he said, hey, if your eye sins, pluck it out. If your hand sins, cut it off. Well, if what we plug into our ears through our little earphones is uh, affecting our soul, then we need to throw those yeah. earphones out. And, and protect what comes into our life through our senses. And as you can said, Ken, it's not that technology per se is evil. That's not the point. It's how we use it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking, Ken, maybe we, why don't we take a break there? We've waxed the whole half of the program on that. Uh, it's a little early yet. Okay, my producer's uh, telling us I'm jumping the gun again. But we're going to look at Romans 7, maybe in the last minute and a half, Ken, or so a couple minutes. Why don't you give us an overview of Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and where that fits into the bigger argument of the entire book of Romans, as well as 
well, I'll challenge it, as well as our wider faith. Well, I hope that uh, our, our listeners can go to the website and, and download the uh, thing. We just have the text there, but basically our text today Rome, is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, in which Paul gives us an analogy uh, you remember he's been arguing the fact that we are have been now we're dead to the law meaning that we don't have to be ruled by uh, the old testament law and that we're free in christ to obey the new law you might say to the to obey christ and to live within the freedom of christ and the freedom of the children of god uh, he's going to, when we come back from the break, we'll talk about the marriage analogy that he gives, that the law rules uh, and as long as we're living under it. But then when we've died to the law, then we're free in the body of Christ to be married to another, to belong to another. And that's where we're with Christ. We are now not living under the uh, dominion of the dominion of our sinful passions, but we're free to bear fruit for God uh, in a life of under the Holy Spirit in the newness of life. Yeah, the, this whole concept that Paul is um, uh, in detail going into in Rome, he, he fleshes out and it shows up in Ephesians, it shows up in Galatians, it shows up in Philippians, you know, that this mm-hmm. idea of the, the new life. And, and what's important to remember is that Paul is writing Romans to Christians, to men and women for whom what he's talking about is already true, but it must be because as he's going to talk about in the rest of the book of seven of Romans, that just because we've arrived We've been baptized. We've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're now a part of the body of Christ. does not mean that our struggle with sin has ceased. And so it goes on. It may be that some people thought it would have ceased, and now they're struggling. Lord, what's wrong with me? Why do I have the same temptations? Why do I keep failing? What's wrong with me? How do I solve this? As a result, some people wanted to go back to the way it was before under the law. Maybe that's a way to control my passions. Others, the former pagans, were saying, well, maybe it's just easier to go back and live the way I wanted to live, the libertines. And Paul, in all these sections, which we'll get to in a second after the break, Ken, he's really saying, no, you've got to remember something very true, that you are now freed from the law and now freed to live the new life of the Spirit. And so that's what we're going to talk about just in a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm your host, Marcus Grote. I joined, as usual, by Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we'll see you in just a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740 
450-1175. Thank you. What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans 7, 1 through 6. Ken, let me take, it's a short enough section, and let me read it. And for those of you that would like, again, go to uh, deepinscripture.com, and you can see our outline, which we usually uh, put it in a unique way uh, on the, the worksheet so you can see the, visibly the, the flow of Paul's argument. Uh, so he begins, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, to you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during his life. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So as you mentioned earlier, Ken, that first part, basically that you could divide the verse up, the section this way. Um, verse 1 Paul reiterates, essentially rhetorically, a truth that Christians already accept as true. And we're going to talk about the significance of why we say it that way. Then verse 2 and 3, he uses the analogy of marriage and says it in such a way that he's not teaching them anything new. He's building on something they already accept as true. Given that, in verse 4, he then applies it to the reality of our new life in Jesus Christ and what it should accomplish. And verse 4 has a lot of great things in it. And verse 5, he reiterates our past 
and our new life in the Spirit. So that's kind of an overview of this passage. Ken, verse 1. Talk about the significance of, if you would, I like having the freedom to always throw you the, the question so you have to give the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, he says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during this life. Now, he's building on a huge history with a certain group of people within his audience. Well, and, and the way that he says it, as you said, uh, he's asking rhetorically, don't you know? And there's a number of other places in, in Romans and in First Corinthians, other places where Paul uses this same expression, don't you know? In other words, what I'm going to, what I'm introducing now is not he sounds, something you He don't sounds know. Norwegian. <laughs> is that way that that's a way that the Norwegians yeah, don't you do know it? don't you know that's a, <laughs> a a phrase that you often hear up in Wisconsin and Minnesota right don't you know anyways oh uh, sorry to interrupt yeah. <laughs> well they uh no and he says I'm speaking to those who know the law now does he mean Jews here or does he mean Jews and those who become Christians who understand now the law but maybe they don't understand the law fully. They understand that the law is on the one hand binding, but also their failures that he'll get to in verse five and in the rest of the chapter. Uh, but when he says that the law is binding, what he's saying here is that <clears throat> that in the Old Testament, um, God's law applied for life. And it applied both for the brevity of life and for the, the length of life. And then he goes in and uses the analogy of marriage. I think that's significant because yep. the mar when he's talking about marriage here, <clears throat> he's assuming something that Jesus um, mentioned in Matthew 19 about the lifelong covenant of marriage, which was the original intention of marriage. Yeah, and it's such a good point, Ken. And I, we want to make sure you, excuse me, you get the significance of this. And those of you who might teaching this as a Bible study, this is really important to see, is that back in Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by authoritative Jewish rabbinical leaders who are challenging Jesus on criteria about divorce. But the background to that is that the culture of our Lord's time had already accepted divorce as viable for a man and a woman. And these, these rabbinical leaders are trying to get Jesus to side one with the other on whether divorce is easy to get out, easy to, to, uh, uh, to have or, or difficult. I think the analogy was if a, if a wife burnt toast, Therefore, a man was justified to divorce her, and the other one argued, no, it was for more serious reasons. But the underlying rhetorical uh, assumption was that divorce had become accepted. And our Lord surprised the rabbinical leaders by going way back before to the time of, and recognizing that Moses had capitulated to the culture and had allowed them divorce for their hardness of heart our Lord says. Mm. So Jesus goes back before Moses, back to the way it originally was, the way God established it from the beginning, and, and reminded them that from the beginning, divorce was not an option. Just as Paul is saying here, the law is binding on a person only during this life. 
he goes, he, he, what we see is that what our Lord established when he corrected the rabbinical leaders has now, by the time of Paul, become the accepted law within Christianity. Paul, about 20 years later, right, Ken, is now yeah. able to write to these Christians about an accepted rule within the church that is not questionable. Already, divorce is no longer an option for married men and women. It's clear that Paul here is is basing his argument on the belief that marriage is a lifelong covenant, and as long as the two people are are um, are, are living, uh, they are bound to one another. He mentions this when he says that um, that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he's living, but if he dies, then she's discharged from that law of the husband. If she if she lives with another. If she engages in sexual relations with another man while her husband is living, she's an adulteress. However, if he dies, then she's free to marry another man. It's very clear that this is exactly what the Catholic Church teaches about marriage. And this is what this is the background for annulments. In other words, um, the bond, the marriage bond is presumed to be valid by the church unless there's compelling evidence to say that there never was a marriage bond in the first place. Why does the church say that? And the annulment is different than the secular divorce. The secular divorce saying there was, it says there was a marriage, but now it's dissolved. An annulment says, no, either there was or there wasn't an initial marriage in the first place. If there was a valid marriage, a sacramental marriage, then it is binding for the rest of their lives. However, if it's not, then the church can declare that, well, on the basis of the evidence that we have, there never was a true sacramental marriage. Yes, some will try and challenge the interpretation of our Lord's words back in Matthew 19, when... Um, when in verse 9, Matthew 19, 9, when he says, and, I, and Ken, you might want to look this up in the Greek because it, it deals with the interpretation of one particular term. Our Lord says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and the RSV says, except for unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery. And many, and I did this as a Presbyterian, I would use that verse to come up with some kind of out clause for divorce just as the rabbinical leaders were trying to do, saying that, well, Jesus said, unless for chastity, unchastity, therefore, you know, the, the, there's an opportunity for divorce. And the, the point is, Ken, that that argument, however you interpret that verse, though I'd like you to deal with that, the point is that by the time Paul is writing Romans chapter 7, 20 years later, he's not trying to convince his audience of this more strict way of understanding marriage, he's able to speak to them without the argument to something they already accept as authoritative and true. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And we need to make sure that we have our facts straight in this regard. Uh, the exception clause, the so-called exception clause that you read from Matthew 19, yes. that, is, that is also mentioned in, in Matthew chapter 5, it's only in the gospel that we find these exception clauses. If you look at the parallel Only in the passages, gospel of Matthew, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the parallel passages 
uh, in in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, the ones that parallel the passage we're reading in Matthew 19. Uh, it says in no uncertain terms that if you that if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he is living in adultery, because the, with the, the assumption being he's all he's still married to that woman, no matter what his actions may be, that doesn't nullify the marriage before God. Uh, now, the, what does the exception clause mean in Matthew? Um, the the word porneia means any kind of a sexual morality in general in its original context. But what I think it's talking about here is the rightly the church sees this as any kind of disorder which invalidates the marriage, the marriage covenant in the original place. That could be of a sexual nature. So, for example, let's say that um, a man was... um, um, you know, has a terrible problem of addiction to pornography, and yet he makes the marriage covenant at the altar in the church, and yet he never reveals to the woman that he's had this problem for some years and so forth. This could be a, a reason for uh, the de- decree of nullity that the marriage was never valid in the first place. That's just an example of it. But it has to do with the where where the marriage uh, what makes the marriage valid and what makes it invalid part of the confusion that's in the protestant world about this is precisely because they've never really defined what constitutes a marriage the catholic church canon law is very clear on this point and one thing i noticed ken we if we were doing a study in matthew we would spend more time on this but that very verse in matthew that phrase except for unchastity yeah. If you look in the footnotes of our Greek Bible, it says that in the earliest copies of the Gospels that are remaining, there are a number of readings here. And, and, and to a certain extent, Kent, some of the oldest readings don't even have that phrase. Yeah, that's and, true. And what it shows is that from the very beginning, this has been a struggle. From the very beginning, there have been people that have been pressing on the issue of marriage and divorce. It has been a longstanding problem. It was a problem during the day of our Lord. He sets yeah. down a standard. Paul's able to address the standard of the church, but that doesn't mean that there weren't people, even copyists of the Bible, that wanted to insert their own views to try and maybe soften the view of Christ in this church. Well, and the, the importance of the covenant of marriage is brought out in verse 4 when he transitions to his, his main point. His main point, he says, similarly, or likewise, brothers... He says, um, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. In other words, when he says belong to another, here he's, he's uh, drawing on the, the marriage analogy. Yep. In other words, yep. you're going to be married to Christ. So you, have to, so you have to be dead to your first husband so that you can be married to Christ, who is the husband. So none of that would make any sense. If the idea yeah. of lifelong marriage uh, were not important and, and a part of the faith. Which is one of the reasons, Ken, that the church, one of the many reasons, of course, that the church is fighting for the sanctity of marriage today. Oh, with yeah, all yeah. the cultural attacks on marriage between a man and a woman. Oh, and yeah. it's, you see that besides the fact that it will destroy marriage, besides the fact yeah. that it will destroy the family, 
if if yeah. in our culture we accept same-sex marriage as equivalent to regular marriage, what you see in Romans 7 is that it undercuts the entire understanding of our salvation through the body of Christ. It understands our freedom from sin, our freedom from the law, freedom to a new life. It all is built on this assumption. And if it's destroyed at one angle, it's like a zipper that runs through the cloth of our faith. Yeah. Yeah, no. It's this is a crucial time for all good Catholic and and other Christians as well as well as all the good people of goodwill to really fight for the integrity of the natural family, and it's not just same sex marriage. For example, I mean all of the reproductive technologies that are out there today, where you have the biological father, for example, is not the same thing as the the social father, and so forth. Uh, this is all moving away from the natural law that God has given us in the um, in in the nature of things, right? And if that's if the more that we move away from that, the more we have lost the background which makes sense of the idea that the church is wedded to Jesus Christ and that it's in the church, in the body of Christ, both his physical body and his mystical body, that we find um on the one hand, being dead to legalism, but being alive to God. Uh, that that expression here, the body of Christ, is very important. Oh, yes. Why don't you, uh, you know, Ken, I, I, I want you to get to that, but I just, I had to be reminded of something, Ken. You were a pastor. I was a pastor. And I, mea culpa, admit that I did indeed form the marriage ceremonies of many divorced people. And I remember as a young pastor out of seminary, I Presbyterian pastor, I personally was against divorce and struggled with that. And I remember the very first time, Ken, when I was a young pastor and I was being called to marry two people, both of whom were divorced and they were getting married. And I remember struggling with, with what to do with that. And I remember the senior pastor that I served under argued this. He said, now let me ask you, Mark, uh, do you think Jesus forgives them? And I said, well, yeah, I think so. Then he said, well, why don't you forgive them? And so that opened the door to marrying whomever. And on the one hand, that sounds like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That sounds like good theology. The problem is with that theology can be used to forgive anything. Nothing stands up then. Because if, if God will forgive anything that we come to him asking for forgiveness, which he will, it says in First John that he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our righteousness if we confess our sins. It says that in First John 1, 9. But that therefore mean that that shapes our morality, our standards, and that unzips everything. And yet it also unzips the power of Romans 7 if you just make it easy to end marriage for whatever reason. It undercuts our understanding of our marriage to Jesus Christ. But he does say the key to this, likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Talk about the significance of that, Ken. Well, I think the significance of, uh, we can take the body of Christ here in two ways. It can refer to the physical body of Jesus Christ, his humanity. But it can also refer to the body of Christ, meaning the mystical body of Christ, the church, as Paul develops that concept both later in Romans and especially in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. And in Ephesians, for example, here's what he says, referring, I think, especially to 
the physical body of Christ. He talks about the Gentiles. This is chapter 2, verses 11 and following in the book of Ephesians. He's talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus saying, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers of the covenant of grace. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now listen to what he says. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought to Christ. How? By the blood of Christ. There's a reference to his physical blood. When Christ died upon the cross, when he shed his blood, he brought people into himself and therefore into the church. Paul goes on, for he himself is our peace, the one who made both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. He made both Jew and Gentile one by breaking down the wall of partition in the middle, which was the enmity between Jew and Gentile. And he broke that down, notice, in his flesh. So he's saying that in the death of Christ, there's a kind of death that takes place. Or the death of what? The death of enmity in Ephesians. And in Romans, I think he's saying that this being enslaved, this enslavement to the law is, was also destroyed through the body of Christ. Now, what could he possibly mean here that you're enslaved, uh, that you were enslaved to the law? Well, we get an idea of that in verse five, when he says that when you were living in the flesh, and he doesn't mean in a physical body, he means uh, the flesh of being dominated by the passions of sin. What happened was when the law said no to those things, when the law says you shall not covet, you shall not. Um, commit adultery, you should not lust after a woman in your heart. What it was doing was even stimulating those desires within us by telling us no. That's what Paul's going to talk about next week when we talk about the about the, the law as being a stimulant to sin. When he's talking about being freed from the law, when dying to the law, he's talking about being dominated by those sinful passions as they were stimulated by the law. Now, we don't have to obey those. We can be free to live in the freedom of Christ. Yeah, that marriage analogy is so key when you think about it. Before Christ, they were married, connected, one with the flesh, the sin, the passions. You know, God calls them to break free, but it was difficult. Uh, And yet we see all through Romans and Ephesians this call when he says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The point being, while you were yet married to that, you you were Mm -hmm. attached to that life, you could not be free. His love for us was such that while we were still He came to us and gave his body and blood and died and resurrected so that we could be free from that, dead to that. And therefore, if we are dead to that, then we are free to move on, using his analogy, to be wed to him, a part of his body, which is his bride. All those great themes of theology, which are so important to our Catholic faith, really come out in this passage. Well, and I think when you talk about the... um the, the, the fact that God loved us, even as he says in Romans 5, verse 8, that God commends his love toward us, that 
that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And what what Paul is saying there is that the law came in, the, the Old Testament law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, all these things. Why did God tell us that? To show us how utterly incapable we are of finding righteousness, uh, perfection, uh, moral perfection, without His grace. It's only His love and His grace that gives us the strength to do that. Now, that's not a Protestant teaching. That's a Catholic teaching. That is, it's only by grace that we can find that salvation which God has came to give us to eternally be with God. And this is why the sacraments are so essential to our lives, because it's through the sacraments constantly receiving this grace to be able to do this. Now, this is where it can be easy for any Catholic or any Christian, for that matter, to really get discouraged because, well, I go, I receive the Eucharist, I go to confession, I have my sacrament of my marriage and so forth, and yet I constantly fail. Remember, we were badly damaged in the fall. (laughs) We were badly damaged in our individual choices that we made in life. It's going to take time to heal those wounds of sin that we have. And so that's what Paul is encouraging people to do. Don't turn back to try to do it by yourself. Depend upon the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how you will bear fruit for God. And what a a great analogy Paul uses, which I'm sure he knew was a problem in his day as it is to this common day. If two people get married, they become one. But after they become married, if they continually look back to the man or woman that they left behind or the men or women they left behind and they yearn for that old life or they draw back to it or they slip out and they go and they continue with the old lifestyle, that marriage is broken. And that's what he is saying about our life in Jesus Christ, is that we've been freed from that old life of the passions of sin. And now we are a bride of Christ. And we be, we're continually tempted to go back, to engage in the things that we did or wanted or felt we needed before. But we are to move forward, to break those old attachments, to be attached to Jesus Christ. To live and serve in the in the newness of the Spirit, as he says in verse 6. That's our goal, to live that newness of life in Christ. And the rest of 7, which we'll get to next year we can, Paul talks about his own struggles doing this. He's not just pointing fingers. He's admitting that he has the same struggle. Thank you, Lord, for Paul being so honest. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this program. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. Go to deepinscripture.com to hear past programs. Let us know. We'd love to have your emails so that we can answer your questions as together we walk closer to Jesus Christ and his church. God bless you. See you next week.